What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and man, is it good to be back. We've had a hiatus for some time. You know, these summer months, kids home from school, you know, in-laws in town, birthdays, summer vacations. It's my bad. I'll take the blame for the delay on this episode, okay? But you know what, guys? It's not about me. It's about my amazing guest, This is the long-awaited episode with the one and only living legend himself, Tom Beers. I was able to sneak away with him during this past Real Screen West. He was very gracious. He gave me an hour of his time. So much fun. I mean, he is a producer's producer. Deadliest Catch, Axemen, Storage Wars, the shows that really gave birth and defined a genre of television. Really enjoyed this sit-down. I hope you do too. Here it is. All right, not that you care, but I have this personal Mount Rushmore, okay, of call it reality TV royalty, right? In no particular order. John DeMall, Mark Burnett, Buna Murray, Tom Beers. Is that fair? Is that a fair list? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, DeMall is a, a genius. You know... On cue, on cue. On cue. Sorry. Hey, can I call you back? <laughs> from where? From where? Sorry. It's okay. Oh, this is my number. You might text me a number. I'll call, or is this a number I can call you back at? I'm just doing an interview right now. Okay. So Mark Padowitz calling? Yeah. Is, that a fair, is that a fair list? No, I think it is. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, because, you know, to be honest, I think DeMaul is, is a genius, but he also has a kind of an unfair advantage. Right. Because uh, he had his own network, you know, so he developed his shows and put it on the channel that, he, you know, he kind of had a piece of. Right. So, boy, wouldn't that be a luxury that we'd all love to have? Absolutely. You know? I'm, and I'm actually kind of surprised that some of the international large studios haven't tried to mimic that same Yeah, but they have. Prototype. I mean, every, 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 every network has always tried to turn their own internal production, and they've never been successful. But you know, have pro- other companies like Fremantle or Endemore or China in the past bought an actual network to just make it themselves? Well, yeah. Actually, uh, Fremantle is owned by RTL. Sure. Which basically have channels all over the world. And right. we own Channel 5 in the U.K. and, and made a complete um, uh, cluster bomb of it. Can, okay. Can we say... You can say whatever yeah, you want. Oh, okay. oh, yeah, you can say so, whatever yeah, you want. So they cluster fucked that one big time. <laughs> Basically sold it, and now it's, it's very, very successful. But, you know, but I, but I think that, you know, obviously Burnett is, you know, he's an icon. Uh, and I think that uh, John Murray, to be honest, John Murray, because uh, Mary, she, she was there and, and really, really integral at the very beginning. But sure. John managed to keep that thing going and actually yeah. picked up new shows. And, you know, so, I mean, and I think Bonham and Murray, absolutely. Um, who would you have on if you had to take yourself off? Let's say, who would you put on in your place? Well, the the that level of player, um, you know, I, I think that you give people like um, Jesus, um, left field. I mean, um, hmm. Charlie Corwin, uh, original uh, out of New York, has uh, had a, a stellar record. Yeah. Um, um, we've got uh, Salianne Salzano, four ninety five, and also in in his own way, Mike Darnell. You know, 
Yeah, I wish I could say that about Mike, but you know, after waiting too many times in his office for four hours for him to show up, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to take him off Rushmore. I'll put him at the bottom of the of the mountain. You know, if he would showed up for one a meeting on time, maybe he'd have put his face up there. I don't think his hair would fit though. <laughs> on the bottom of the alternates list. Yeah, no, I, have a... I don't mean alts. I mean, Wait, I just I think that, if you, you expanded, if you went out and added, why does Rushmore got to have? Isn't there five, there four or five? Four Pelagian. Greg Pelagian. I mean, an epic record. In, you you in brought this up business. Charlie Corwin. Yeah. Who I love yeah. and who's a great guy, and I, I want to get him on the show one day. When he named his company Original Media yeah. and your original productions, did you have beef there? Did oh, you call him and oh, say, what, what the I hell? I hated him. I mean, I'm like, you know, that mother. I'm, someday I'm going to meet this guy and I'm going to punch him out. Because was, there was a lot of confusion uh, in the marketplace. Of course. And, you know, and they, when they came out to the West Coast, they were calling our people and trying to hire them, and they think they were, were original productions. And I was, you know, and finally I had I met him after about four or five years, and I was really, you know, ready to hate this kid. And I turned out that I loved him. He's the best. I mean, he's he's a lovely guy, and his his uh, his work ethic and his product is is superior. So we actually ended up hanging out together. So here's a guy that was ready to duke it out with, and now we we're going to art shows together, collect <laughs> art, you know. So you know, you just never know. You know, the funny thing about this business is that. I've never looked at anybody as a competitor. Mm. You know, when you realize we had a very successful shop at OP, you know, and we, we at one time we were doing almost $85 million worth of production, but even that was only 240 hours or 240 programs. Huh. You know, when you realize that 10,000 are produced every year yeah. and we're only delivering basically, you know, one, two, uh, two Point two five of the programming, you know. So in essence, it's amazing that you know that that volume. So there's room for everybody. So, but you know, going back to the your idea, the Rushmore is also. I mean, Pelagian has been you know really really instrumental in, in, in you know in, in creating a genre for himself, and I think he's terrific. Um, you know, those are about the key guys. Yeah, you know, that's right. That's just, what I think. Yeah. yeah. So you are viewed by many young storytellers and and. You know, would-be producers that want to start their own production company one day and sell it or run a major studio. You're, you're looked at as one of the godfathers, right? Were there people from afar when you were growing up, whether it was certain shows or certain writers or directors, that kind of inspired you to want to work in entertainment as a whole? Well, when, no. when, did, when did it kind of interest you? No, I grew up in my, – my parents were both actors. So I grew up in the business in upstate New York originally, and they both worked at Theater in the Round in Buffalo. Huh. And, you know, I remember when I was very young, maybe six, five or six years old, and Jane Mansfield came to our house because she was doing – my mom was in Denver doing a play with her. And I get this great picture of me kind of standing up proudly with my head between her breasts, you know, just smiling like crazy as Jane Mansfield. So we got a that bug very early on. Uh, and weirdly enough, uh, my mom, we lived in a very small town in upstate New York, and my mom, four kids, and we didn't have a lot of money, so she used to dream about traveling. She used to love, wanted to travel. I remember coming home one day, and she was a great artist, and she had painted the entire living room like an African forest, a, rain, it was a jungle, with, complete with animals. And she painted the walls huh. and saying, I'll never get to Africa, but... This is my Africa, and we'll live with it here. So that inspired me early. But there was another story, and this is a really cool story. You're talking about divine kind of guidance. Yeah. Um, 
My mom at the time, my parents were divorced, and again, I was probably eight or nine at this time, and she was dating a guy named uh, Alan Silito, and Silito was one of the angry young British writers. I think he wrote uh, All the Pretty Horses, or you know, a few of these really you know, cool books, and um, he was dating my mom, and he had just come back from Safari, they say, the Brits say, <laughs> they don't say Safari, they say Safari, and he had just come back from Africa, and he handed me a National Geographic magazine. Wow. This is 1962. And he said, if he can do it, you can do it. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I leafed through the magazine and, you know, found all the breast pictures first. <laughs> and I, I knew he wasn't talking about that, you know. And so then I'm kind of looking at the culture and stuff like that. And I, I couldn't figure it out until a couple of weeks later. I'm looking at just at the masthead. And the president of National Geographic at the time, his name was Thomas Beers. He had the same name as me. Come on. I still have the magazine. And I thought, God. If he can do it, I can do it. So it was this divine guidance. And funnily enough, flash forward 25 years, and I'm the Turner Broadcasting executive producer of National Geographic Explorer. Unbelievable. And I'm sitting in the, the big hall having with my name with a ceramic plaque with my name on it and getting served lunch with white-gloved waiters. I'm thinking, oh, my God. this I, you know, It was like, wow. Talk about divine guidance. How about that for a story? Was that part of the reason why you always went by Tom and not Thomas? No, at the time, I'd already decided to be Tom. No, it was because of Tom McCann's shoes. You know, it's like, I just thought it was cool. My name is T-H-O-M-A-S, so you should drop the ass, and it's Tom. That's it. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to school in upstate New York, a little, little high school there. Then I ran off to, um, let me see, I went to Green, uh, Genesee Community College first. I flunked out there. I went to the University of Buffalo. But your dad was Vietnam always working War. in the theater even after your parents no, no, divorced? No, 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 no. He worked for, no, it was, he was an amateur. But my mom was a professional. He was, he was working for Ford. Okay. Actually, where he was a service manager, which is where I got all my whole grease monkey That's what I was wondering. from. Yeah, so I'll explain that. So he had a real blue-collar oh. existence. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I tell you, I, I still, when I walk into a service area, that, that smell of oil on metal, yeah. I love that smell. I mean, me and my brother would do inventory three, four times. Okay, see, now it makes yeah. sense. So, so your mom your mom was, was a, dream, but dreamed of traveling, right. Right, exotic locations, right. and you have a father who's a grease monkey. Yeah. Is that not your whole, the whole career of characters that you've brought forth in a nutshell that's it that's my whole universe and you know no do what you know you know and that's what that's a big piece of advice for me you know i mean even i collect art now a Mm. lot of my art like ed ruchet all the standard gas stations you know what i mean (laughs) so in essence in his his whole parts collection i mean i just love you know that's my world you know, so I and, I and I just love that world. I mean, I couldn't be more passionate about motorcycles and cars. I just bought a 1948 Willys Roadster. You so know? you really live this stuff. Oh. These weren't just shows you did. This, uh-uh. this was who Tom Beers is. No, I love driving around. I got my 1969 Pontiac GTO Judge Ram Air 4 convertible. And Holy cow. My 1940 Ford panel truck. Where I mean, do you drive them? What do you, how I, do you? I've got a garage and I just pick them up and drive them around one. You know, just, you know, just uh, out whatever. Out Burbank? Is that where you live? Yeah, Burbank. Well, no, I, it's uh, the, my warehouse is in, I live in Sherman Oaks. And my okay. warehouse is in uh, Van Nuys and uh, my offices are in Burbank. We're neighbors. I'm right over there in Encino. Yeah. 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 That's um, where I got my GTO from. Crazy story. I bought yeah. that and I sold all my Monster Garage cars. I owned all the Monster Garage cars. All so of them? I had 50. Well, Jesse had a few. I gave him right. a few. And uh, we left a few with people in the show. But I owned the bulk of my own 50 cars. And I took care of them. I had them for contractually for discovery. I had to keep them for four years huh. because they wanted to use them to, pr- to promote the show. But then it's cost me a quarter of a million dollars a year just to store them and take care of them. Right. So I'm like, dude, I'm just pulling through a million bucks with these cars. So I sent them off to Scott. 
sale to uh, Barrett Jackson uh, to an auction, and I, I sold them all. Wow. It was really cool because all these people were like collectors, big fans of the show, and they all wanted. This one woman had a barn in Indiana, Indiana, and she literally her son was ten, huge fan. She bought five of the cars, including the airplane car. You know, but I kept a few. I kept the belly tank roadster. I own the hot air balloon. You know, I fly that in Mexico. <laughs> well, you you went there, so let's just start there. In, in 1999, you start original productions because mm-hmm. you were asked by Discovery to do a special, right? A two-hour special. Well, it's even funnier than that. You want to talk about dreams? Yeah. I started a dream. I was working at Turner Broadcasting before that. Yeah. You know, and I spent years at Turner. I spent 11 years there, and that was really my my, my litmus and my, my mm-hmm. and my proving ground uh, as an executive. You know, I I learned a lot about making television shows. And then I, I started working. I was, I was, as I said, National Geographic. I was also the executive producer of Audubon, and I was Jacques Cousteau's executive producer right. for six years. Right. So I worked with all these iconic characters, these people uh, back then that were just extraordinary. Ted Turner. I mean, he was in a major. What, major what era of Turner is this? Like, and what is your role? This is exactly? The beginning. I was, I was working in the International Documentary Unit. Got it. Uh, and I was, we were Ted Turner's conscience. You know, okay. he'd say, "Hey, you know, there's too many people in the world. Go make a documentary about population." And we'd go disappear for like. Six months. I mean, one time he says the rivers are getting polluted. Make a f-. so we made this film called Without Borders, and we spent a year sitting on the Ganges, the Nile, the Mississippi, the Amazon, and the oh my gosh. Zambezi River. Literally, just it was just extra- extraordinary. You know, I mean, incredible. That was our life. And then you know, I'm also one of the creators of Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Okay, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I saw that on your resume yesterday as I was prepping for this. Mm -hmm. You were listed as a supervising producer. Mm -hmm. Captain Planet of the Planeteers, were you writing episodes as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't write the the scripts because the the script is done with Deke, but we wrote all the outlines because those were based on our experiences traveling around the world. Remember, I'd spent 10 years, uh, nine nine years traveling around the world. I mean, living with the Kayapo Indians in the Amazon, the Yanomami, uh, you know, filming with the uh, the Samburu in Africa, you know, living. I mean, literally, we we shot, I shot in 21 countries in Africa. But you were an in house exec for Turner. Yeah. And it aired on Turner. But I was an in house exec, but I was also, I started to progress into producer, so I started creating. Series like Wildlife Adventures, yeah. in-house productions, and started to make those as well. So it, that got me out. But I was the, as the executive. I got a chance. It's funny. I mean, how, but probably twenty people here I've worked with when I'm, the old Turner days are still here. You know, making films. Have you heard the theory about? The characters from Captain Planet and the characters from the Magical School Bus. You've got to Google this thing. I, I don't even know what the Magical okay, School Bus is. The Magical School Bus is another cartoon kind of in that same era of like late 80s, early 90s. Uh-huh. And there's this fan theory that's out there on the internet that basically the children from the Magical School Bus are the kids from Captain Planet because they're the exact same genders and racial backdrop I'm kidding, really? for all the kids. Wait a minute. So they think we stole their idea? Uh, I'm not. No, I'm not sure who came first. I'm not sure who came first. No, I think I'm But it's the, it's the same assembly of men and women who also happen to be from the same racial backgrounds as the kids from Captain Planet. You know, would you love to do that now? I'd love to pick up Captain Planet now, like, and say that these, you know, now Kwame and you know, the, Leonardo like, DiCaprio uh, got the rights, Tom. Yeah, he's got the rights. You heard but I'd like to do, Yeah, but yeah. I push it forward to like they're in their 30s and 40s and disillusioned. Okay, that was my. Know? That's the take I have. My, yeah. But in my take, Will Ferrell's Captain Planet, and he's out of shape, and Amy Poehler and Will Arnett and people like that are the kids grown up. Yeah, and they have to get Planet uh, Captain Planet back in shape. Yeah, exactly. It's like a comeback story. Exactly. Totally. That's, right. And that's exactly the way I do it yeah. because, you know, the weird part about Like 21 that, Jump Street style, like yeah, that tone, yeah. right? Oh, perfect. Yeah. Because, you know, the weird thing is that you, you know, we realized very early when we were working at Turner that um, the people that we were trying to reach with the message 
they didn't watch television. Yeah. You know? So we're, we're basically preaching to people who had gave no, or had no interest, you know, and the ones that were interested were ones that were outdoors, enjoying the outdoors <laughs> instead of sitting home watching television. You right. know? So it was like, it was a real disconnect. It was really tough. But Captain Planet took off. Captain Planet was one of those fun little cartoons. And boy, I got to tell you, the in-house battles on that were outrageous. Because, really? Oh, the ad About sales. How, how preachy ad they sales get? guys hated us. Sure. You know, because we were basically going after big business, you know, industry, pollutants, right. everything. And they and so, I mean, I remember Duke. We had one of our, our villains called Duke Nukem. And the Duke Power Plant in North Carolina sued us because they thought we were making fun of them, you know. And then the power company got into it. And then the ad sales guys. It was just like, so every time we, you know, even our environmental programs were the same way. I mean, you know, we every time a show would go on the air, the ad sales guys would just run for the hills. But how did you make the transition from being in-house at Turner to then launching original so one day i yeah. started having these dreams really really interesting and you're i, like, I like, dreamt that i was going to be 50 years old and i'd be living in atlanta georgia and i'd be getting a pink slip from turner broadcasting and i'd be going how the hell am i ever going to get so i started to really worry about that so i started to put my feelers out uh and i was about 45 at the time and um you were 45 when you started original yeah, i'm 66 years old man you know it's like yeah it's like I'm, yeah but you're like the you're like the new 66 years old or whatever uh, you. yeah you're a virile 66 so so i was 45 at the time and i moved out here God, I, was, I didn't realize that yeah, yeah and, and um and i got hired by paramount and i came to work with Bert van munster who then went on to become uh, create sure. the amazing race right. and bertram and i created a series called wild things uh i was the showrunner they brought me in from atlanta Bird at the time had done cops, and they wanted to do a cops meets natural history wildlife film. And I was doing all the wildlife stuff at Turner Broadcasting. So I thought it would be a good combination. So I worked for a year uh, in the first season of that. And it's just one of those great stories that, you know, it was hard. It was tough. And at the same time, my wife was pregnant. My ex-wife. Not my, my wife was pregnant with our, our son, Max. And all day I'm working. And then my son was born almost three months premature, 10, 10 weeks premature. Oh. So he's in the hospital in the emergency room. My wife is kind of spun out from, you know, from the whole thing. And I'm working all day long. And I'm coming to the hospital at night. And then I've got crews all over the world doing wild things. They're calling me at 2 in the morning from Malta asking for – because I'd filmed everywhere. So me and Bert had – so I, asking for advice on what to do next. They're calling me from, you know, from, from South Africa. From, so, I mean, I'm getting about four hours of sleep. This goes on for a couple of weeks. And I get called in by the Paramount executive. She calls me into her office, and I'm thinking she's going to say, hey, you know, geez, I know this is really tough, and your kid's in the hospital. She says to me, she says, you know, your work is really shoddy, and I don't get this whole baby thing. And she did air italics with baby thing. <laughs> The female boss <laughs> told the male employee yes, that yes. she didn't understand the, the baby whole thing. Baby thing in in air italics. That might be a first in Hollywood. No, I got to be honest. At that moment, I kind of in my head, I ripped her head off her neck. I, I pulled her heart out and shoved it up her ass. I mean, it was just like I, mean, yes. I was just so. And at that point, I knew I was done. So uh, I finished the season, and you know, clearly they weren't going to pick up my contract. So then I'm thinking, oh my god, I, I got a brand new kid. I'm like, I don't know anybody in Los Angeles. And so I didn't think anybody would hire me. So I said, well, let me just start a company. I didn't know what that meant. So I started a company and literally two days later, I got a call from Steve Burns, God bless him, from Discovery Channel at the time. He said he had a show called Extreme Alaska. Right. And the producer had fallen out and he thought I could make that show. So I took that, the first, that was the first commission so I got. Only, which, so it only took you two days yeah. after conceiving the idea to have your own company and you were still going to figure out what that actually meant. Yeah. And then this project falls into your lap and you're now able to get 
original productions their first credit yeah. and start growing from there. Yeah, but uh, there's some interesting stories. Now, the nice part about that was the, the one of the it was a two hour yeah. uh, anthology piece about extreme Alaska. One segment in that was 12 minutes long, and I'd already I'd planned it out. Was me on a crab boat in the, in the Bering Sea. Get out. So I went to sea. I talked myself on a ship, me and a cameraman and a sound guy. Talked ourselves on, on the Fierce Allegiance. Uh, and two days later, we're 200 miles at sea. And the worst storm in 40 years <gasps> rolls in. So we're filming. I've got a, literally cameras in an a, a, a underwater housing strapped to, uh, to masts, but they're just batteries. I mean, I mean literally batteries right. and tape. And so in this massive storm, the winds are pushing 70 knots. The, the seas are cresting at 40 feet. I'm climbing these masts, changing tapes. It was like this crazy stuff. And all of a sudden, two boats sunk, seven guys drowned, never even found the bodies. What? I mean, and we just kept filming, you know? And I kept thinking, this is a funny part of the story. And, and you're so... You know, out of it. I hadn't slept in two, three days, you know, and I'm just kept taping, kept filming, kept filming. And, and all of a sudden, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, and I've got these meticulous notes I'm taking, right? Because I'm thinking, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm going to put all this tape. I've got a beautiful little Pelican case, and I've got all my tapes in there, and I've got all my notes. And as this boat sinks, in my last effort, right. my dying effort, I heave this Pelican case overboard. I know the current travels south, so I'm figuring in a couple of years' time, that case is going to wash up on shore in Santa Monica, and some little girl's going to pick it up and hand it to her Emmy Award-winning father, editor, and say, Daddy, look what I found, and he would make my film. And your young son. And my young son would, you know, and, oh, dude. We'll see oh, the father's work. I'll tell you a very funny story about that one, too. But so basically, so, you know, and we filmed this thing, and it was so extraordinary. It was just chaos, but we got it. And so when I got back to L.A., and by the way, when I got off the boat, I've been on the boat for a week. I got off that boat, and my people, my productions people were on shore. They never went with me. And I got off that boat. I couldn't even speak English. I was so feral. I just grunted. I was like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was completely out of my mind. Bad shit crazy. Like, <laughs> Wait, had you had you ever been on a boat like that before? Was this all not new a for crab you? Crab fishing boat. Yeah, no. this is all new for you. No, being, I just talk- being deep out at sea. This was all new for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but I didn't care. I mean, I talk, you had I've no always talked myself. Experience growing up. I talked myself. No, I've always talked myself into anything. You know, to me, why do we do this? Why do we do what we do? We do it because me, I got wanderlust. I mean, I want to taste it all. I don't, I don't want to eat it all. I just want to taste it all. I want to see it all. So, I mean, to me, this is the greatest job in the world for that. Just, just get out there. You know, and that to me, I mean, that's the reason I do this, and I still do it. And I, Thirty-two years, forty years later, I'm but, still out there doing it. But that accounted for only fifteen minutes inside that two-hour special. Yeah, but then. I jumped on a plane. I cut a little piece together, and I jumped on a plane, and I flew back east. And I went and sat down with John Ford, who was the head of the Discovery Channel at the time, and I showed him the clips. Right. I said, John, it's a great 12 minutes, but i got to tell you, give me another $60,000, and I will make you an hour. <laughs> and he said, okay. So he gave me 60000 and I made a little film called The Deadliest Job in the World. Right. Um, that show, John Ford told me years later that they did, they were really curious as what was the most lucrative show they'd ever made. That was the most <laughs> lucrative television program they had ever made because it only cost them $60,000. And it turned into Deadliest and, and Catch. Deadliest Catch. And it created Deadliest Catch. And you, know, you go, but by the way, that only yeah. took me five years to get Deadliest Catch well, back on the air. Well, that's what I was going to say because 99, you start the company. That's when you do the first two-hour special. Right. But you, you launched Monster Garage in 2002. Right. And that was really the first real hit, right? Yeah. That put mm-hmm. OP on the map. Yeah. How did you know Jesse James? How did 
did you guys get acquainted? I was doing a special for his. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm just going to take you through the greatest hits here briefly with each one because we only have like a half hour because we're at Real Sorry. Screen West right now and they're dragging you into a meeting. So give, give me, give me the, the quick story on Jesse James and you can just give me all the quick hitter. Well, Jesse, facts. I was doing a, 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 I was doing, I got commissioned to do a, they wanted, Discovery wanted me to do a special on Harley Davidson because mm-hmm. I'd done one at Turner Broadcasting and it was a huge success for, for Turner. They're still doing them. Yeah. And, but, you know, I said, you know, in my mind, I bait and switched them. And thank God I had an executive, Sean Gallagher, who's here. Yeah. Who's an amazing executive. And I said, Sean, I'd already done the Harley Davidson right. show, but I, there's a new thing out there right now, and it's called choppers. And they're hand custom built motorcycles. And I think that's what you really want. You want something that's got cultural impact. And so I started searching around. And uh, Hugh King was a producer for me at the time, ran into, found Jesse James, and a little bike shop in down, down in Long Beach. I mean, he had. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. He had the hundred dollar bills so tattooed you knew to his about back. This movement of choppers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one of your members of your team went and found Jesse James yeah. to apply to this well, idea. Well, they found twenty different bike right. builders. Now I'm looking at this thing, going, "Who's this guy?" Right. So I went down to see Jesse, uh, and so we made a one, that one hour special. Uh, on, on choppers, which still to this day, Steve Burns gives me shit about because this, where's my Harley film? Cause I didn't make the Harley <laughs> film, but the show was a huge success, which right. then created biker buildoffs. Right. You know, so I created a whole genre, which went for a handful of seasons. Yeah, biker yeah. buildoff was a big success. Yeah, it was huge. So it, it created something that really sustained it as opposed to another Harley Davidson show. So then I said, you know, then I created again, talk about dreaming. I woke up one night in the middle of the night and my ex-wife said, and I went, Oh Yeah. So she asked me the next morning, she said, you know, you got up in the middle of the night and went, oh, yeah. And I went, oh, yeah, because I dreamed, I had dreamt that I turned a Mustang into a lawnmower. So I said, you know what? I think there's a car show here. Shut up. Yeah. And so Sean Gallagher came to me and he you said, You dreamt that? I dreamt it. You dreamt the entire format of Monster Garage. Exactly. Exactly. The thought of a hybrid vehicle was just something to flash in your mind. And thank God you were married, by the way. Yeah, th- thank God that she woke me up the next morning and said, what was that? Yeah. I'm like, oh, because I would have forgotten about it completely. So then I go to Sean because they were looking. I knew they were looking for uh, – Discovery was looking for their junkyard wars. TLC had junkyard wars. Mm-hmm. So I came to him and I said, look, I got this crazy idea. And so we started to develop it. But you know, there's a lesson here because I developed it straight. We went straight to the head of the network, Mike Quatrone, and he said, yeah, develop this. I bypassed everybody. And by the time I finished developing the show, the day I handed in, Mike Quatrone resigned. And a new exec came in and who, and who resented, who came out of development group, who resented the fact I'd gone over their heads. Right. So I went straight to the back of the line with that one. No way. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it took a while for me to kind of, you know, get back. And so it's a good lesson for you people at home. You know, don't bypass the system unless you, you know, you, unless you're, you got a lot of money in the bank and you're not afraid to piss somebody off. All right. So that goes, that goes So for... now I sneak Jesse into... Monster. Right. I take. I have dinner with him one night. I said, "Jesse, I got this crazy idea." And let me. I show him the drawings. I said, "You know, can you do this?" And he's like, "He thought I was nuts. He thought I was crazy. I, I don't know if I want to do this." Said, "Come on, what do you got to lose?" And so we made. But this is the best part. So we make the first show. Now we're using tools out of my garage. I don't have right. a budget for anything, right? So we're literally shitty chop saws and freaking wrenches and all the stuff that I had. And Jesse threw some stuff in, and we're making the show. And it was the Mustang. But the killer was it was Thanksgiving. We were shooting that pilot, and so we had, had to take a break right in the middle. Of the show 
everybody to go home. But they were having such a miserable time, nobody wanted to come back. <laughs> I'm kidding, to finish the show. So I had to push the, literally push the Mustang into the corner of the garage and start Build 2. So we started on Build 2 with a whole new group. And it took me almost three months to get those guys back to finish that show because they thought, man, this is embarrassing. Oh this is God. the biggest piece of shit. This is a terrible <laughs> show idea. It's awful. And then it went on to make history. Yeah. All right. So in, that's 2002. So OP is starting to ride high now. You have a hit show. Yep. You have a few shows under your belt. And now that last project you spoke of becomes Deadliest Catch in 2005. Yeah. 13 seasons. Tell me now. 15 I, now. 15 now. Mm-hmm. If I were to watch season one now mm-hmm. and now watch the current season of Deadliest Catch, what differences would there be, if any? Oh, technology has made leaps and bounds. I mean, yeah. you know, we, in the old days, we again, we just have small housings and we try to catch. Because you know the brilliance of, of Deadliest Catch is, you know, think about this. It's high risk, high reward in a really exotic location. That's really the key to all of my shows. Yeah. I mean, actually, all of them. They all have that same theme. And we treat them as if it's a sporting event because guys love sporting events. They love scores. They want to know who won, who lost. You know, so that's – the crab count was critical for that show. Mm. So we started to create this. So basically, it took me almost five years. I, and, and God bless Abby Greensfelder who came in at, at, at Discovery at the time because I've been trying to say, look, guys, I can make another show here. Right. And she gave me a green light for three one hours. Okay. But this is the best part. This is great television stuff. So I go out there. I'm ready. I'm same season, same thing. I can't believe they go. got you back in the boat oh, after yeah, your first there, experience. Oh, yeah. But here's the best part. Dead flat seas. Nothing. <laughs> no storm. No nothing. I mean, I'm talking about, oh, my God. Yeah. This is awful. I'm thinking I'm, my career is I'm sunk. Screwed. It's terrible. But in Knockwood, we got lucky uh, in the second or to the last day. Uh, we got a storm rolled in. Guy went overboard. You know, they saved his life. And then I started to craft, understood, started crafting the show. And here's the thing. The network looked at it. I think Michael Klein was running the program at the time. And he looked at it and said, you know, this is boring. I heard from people saying he looked at the cut and said, God, this is dull. Let's just bury it. We'll put it on a Sunday night, give huh. it a nice slot. But we're going to bury it. No promotion. No, not, not even a coming up next. Basically, three one-hour block, blocked it, three one-hours, put okay. it on the air. The show Sunday Night Discovery used to do a point eight on a Sunday nights at that time. That show started at a point eight, and every quarter hour, it went up, it went up, went up. It went from a point no eight. Way. It went out at a four eight. Holy cow. It was just like the exponential. It was like perfect stairs. It was like, and they're just sitting there. Now, this is the best part. So I get a call the next morning from the head, the new head. Billy Campbell's the head of the network at the time. He calls me up. He's a scripted guy. Yeah. Right? He comes in and runs Discovery Channel. This is amazing. This is calling me so excited about the reason. We, we need more. We need more. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, great, great. I, I, I want 10. I want to, give me 13 of these. I'll take 16 <laughs> of them. So how, when can I have them? I said, in a year? <laughs> right. What do you mean a year? What do you mean a year? Yeah. He said, yeah, well, there's a season, and the boats only go up there. For, no, no. He says, I don't care. Just get, get them out there. I don't care what they're fishing for. Just get them out there. Start fishing. Of I'm course. like, dude, Billy, I can't. He was so upset. He had to wait a year to get those shows on the air. But, but, tell, but tell the listeners, because you and I had lunch a long, long time ago, actually. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. And, and during that lunch, one thing that stuck with me is you applied your knowledge of the classic three-act stage play structure to your storytelling, which I thought was kind of brilliant because most producers in our genre would just let the cameras fly and let let the story unfold. But you really 
went to the pattern of the beats in every classic three-act play. Well, I came out of the theater, remember? So I was an actor in New York and also a playwright. So I'd written a number of plays in New York, and I'd studied with the greats. I'd studied with, worked for Lee Strasberg, who was a great acting teacher. I worked for him as house. So I got a chance to really get a a lot of inside information, you know, from him and some insight. Uh, Uta Hagen, Stella Adler, great scene studies guys. McKnight, the the greatest uh, uh, playwright uh, you know, the right. script doctor in the world. So I studied with these guys, and I really understood that three-act structure. And when I say that, it's kind of like this. Think about a television show. that There's five breaks in a TV show for commercials. So what you do is, in every break, just beforehand, you've got to have a cliffhanger. You've got to have something that t- carries you through that break. You know, so in essence, you'd build your drama. Your dramatic arcs would work in basically in five acts. You know, right. it's, but it's a three-act structure. So right. you've got catharsis. You've got... You've got um, Basically, you have somebody that's ramping up their jeopardy, and basically they're, they're coming in conflict in the middle act, and obviously they settle in, in the third act. So, you know, so in essence, you had to kind of create those story arcs and the character arcs so that they would be all of them would be in jeopardy in Act One or in Act One and Two. Then Act Three, you basically would have some type of a conflict or something that would happen, and you'd have catharsis out the, on, on the back on the last the last act. You know, with with some type of uh, also what we love to kick was but, crab counts. But don't you feel that? That's the difference of what made Deadliest Catch Deadliest Catch. There's a lot of people that could have gotten the same cast, the same access, the same weather and boats, but the show wouldn't have been the same without that view going into it. Well, look at – it's 15 seasons later. And right. What there, it's, a, it's, a, it's the first male soap, reality soap opera. Mm. You know, I mean that's what it was. I and mean talk, other soap- than professional wrestling. Let's be fair. I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah, joking. Yeah. I'm just joking. No, but, but you know, so it really did. So you could follow – you know, people are more just in the characters. I mean when Captain Phil died, mm. that was a, 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 an emotional – we were all – I mean, it took us weeks to get through that edit. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't cut that. You'd be cutting that for three minutes. You'd be screening, and we'd be sitting out in the parking lot crying. You yeah. know, it was a tough one because he was a good friend to all of us, and it was just such a tough loss. But nobody ever captured that kind of death on TV before yeah. in reality and treated – and we only did it because Phil said he wanted us to do it. Yeah. You know, so that was really even key. So obviously so many shows, Ice Road Truckers, Axemen, <laughs> Thousand Ways to Die. I guess the question I have just as a producer, when I look at, when I look at the shows and the order of how they went, because 05, it's Deadliest Catch, 07, Ice Road Truckers, 08, Axemen. Ice Road Truckers and Axemen, both History Channel shows. So you are now the cock of the walk at Discovery. You've got the president, as you just said, eating out of your hand, wanting more and more episodes. And your next big hit, Ice Road Truckers and X-Men, both dangerous job shows, are at History Channel, okay. a competitor. So what kind of situation did you place yourself in when you had both of them coming after you for these shows? I assume Discovery Channel wanted those shows. Am I wrong? No, that's, that's the problem. What happened at Discovery at the time? This is a long time ago. Remember, they just got into uh, uh, non-scripted uh, con- continuity series. Yeah. Before that, they were always doing one-offs or at the best, the most, they do three. Right. You I know, mean, this is still got... the birth of reality yeah, TV. Yeah, this is the very beginning. Yeah. So they weren't used to the idea that you could actually make long form, you know, these basically arced series. I mean, 10, 12, 14 parts. So what happened was I started to pitch them on new show ideas. And they literally told me, no, no, no. You should just focus on Deadliest Cat. Oh, my God. So they basically self-immolated the whole thing. They, they crushed that. So I went, fine. At the same time, Nancy Dubuque yep. was at History Channel. She called me up one day. And this is a woman. She is one tough cookie. Oh, yeah. The first time I went to pitch her, and I was making the shows for Discovery, I went to pitch her, and I pitched a bunch of stuff. Nah, that's shit. Nah, that's crap. Nah, I don't want that. I don't want that. And so I said to her, as you would as a producer, well, Nancy, could you tell me what you're looking for? Why would I tell you? She says, you work for the enemy. 
<laughs> so I'm like, okay then. I just yeah. so I tap danced out the door. <laughs> but she called me and she had the courage. It was her. Hmm. That show Ice Road Truckers, they had a show on. It was a one hour show. A documentary that every time it aired, it would pop a number. Oh. So she said, could you do what you did on crab boats on a, in a truck, in an ice truck? So I looked at it. But this is the funny part. I'm thinking, I'm looking at this like, no, let me see. How do I create conflict on this? It's a single person sitting inside a truck going 15 miles an hour right. in a straight line. Yeah. Yeah. Where the fuck? Where's the jeopardy? Where's? Right. But it, it finally dawned on me that the antagonist in this whole thing was the ice. Mm-hmm. And if I could make you understand that that ice at any moment could crash, could crack, and the truck would go through it, I had you. Yeah. And I only had to have you for the first season because once you got through that again, you'd be into the characters. So you'd be you'd be paying attention to the characters and not the fact that the the truck never fell through the ice. So but Nancy had the courage because at that time they were airing all World War II programming. They right. Were doing it. And she came out with this announced that she was making this show and her board was not happy about it. Wow. And she came up with, and I loved it. They said, this is not history channel. She said, yes, it is. It's living history. That's where that term got And that's made. where it came from. Nancy made that up on the spot and she sold it that way. She had the courage, but I'm not, I got to tell you, and she'll say the same thing. If that show hadn't worked, both right. our careers would have gone in the toilet. So ten seasons of that show? Yeah, yeah, it's still airing. It's still we're still producing. X Men nine seasons. Mm, yep. Thousand Ways to Die went eight seasons. In oh nine, okay, so two thousand nine, Freeman acquires original. Yes. Good deal. Happy deal. It was a terrific deal. It was actually okay. a terrific deal for all sides. Okay. And why Fremantle? And what 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 was the right situation at that point? Did original control the international rights to Axemen and? We owned Axemen. We are. Um, we owned. No, we owned Ice Road Trucker. No, I'm trying to remember which shows we owned. I can't, but I, you were I, retaining those rights. We were retaining some of the rights. We would make okay. deals. I'd make a deal with A and E and say, "Look, I'll make." Two for you and then one for me. Oh, really? There Two was a for split? you and one for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so never it, happens. Yeah, well, that was the only way I could, you know. But it was, the, again, in those early days yeah. where the international market really yeah. hadn't known what to do with these shows No, yet. but then, then all the networks got a huge appetite for international growth. Right. And so they've restricted those rights. As a matter of fact, I was the first one restricted on it. They say, they're like literally said to me, I cannot believe I'm hearing this, but they said to me, no, no, we can't give you the rights to your shows. They're too successful. <laughs> <laughs> Like, right. Wait a minute. No, my favorite story is this. I'm not kidding you. I'm here at Real Screen one time, and I'm sitting between uh, uh, Sean, uh, the head of uh, A&E International Distribution, and the head of Discovery International uh, on a panel. Okay. And I'm in the middle of the two of them. And one of them says to the other, you know, we launched Deadliest Catch on 140 channels around the world. You know, that show launched 140 channels. And the other guy says from a says, yeah, you know, we've just used uh, Ice Road Truckers to launch. We've opened up our 40th, you know, international station. <laughs> And uh, we're moving towards 100 ourselves. And I'm sitting there looking at these two guys going, hey, where's my fucking money? Where's my check? Where's my <laughs> nothing, check? Because there was no imputed license fee. They could put it on any one of their channels oh worldwide, gosh. and I got nothing. So I'm sitting there watching these guys saying that they just built entire global networks on my back, and I didn't get a penny. But when, when Fremantle bought you, they weren't just buying a huge, thriving production infrastructure and all the money you're making on the margins. They were actually buying some international rights to those that you were yeah, yeah, yeah. And holding they, back. And I held back a lot of shows at the very end before uh, with my old distributor. Preparing to sell. Preparing to sell. Okay. So, yeah. So they went out and they made a lot of money early on in my, my, my library. I'd, I'd held back a bunch of okay. shows. So, yes. But, yeah, it was a, it was a great deal. And, and it was a perfect time to do it. And you made good on that deal because then two years later, 2011, you launched Storage Wars. 
which is a whole other like genre buster as well, and yeah. gave life to a whole other arena of shows after that. And copycats. You know, it's funny about that show, and this is one. This is where Nancy doesn't take credit for mm. because Nancy, I, I picked, I, we developed that show, you know, ourselves. Okay. And I took it to Nancy because I loved working with the A and E guys, and she said, "I love this show. I love this a lot." But you know, here's the thing: I want, I want to put it in the air. But I got this other show we just started production on, and I'd like to see how it does first. Mm. So I'm sitting there waiting, and five, six months later. Pawn Stars goes on the air. Uh, Boom. Huge hit. I'm like, all right, Nancy, it's going to work. She's like, mm, Tom, you know what? i got to be honest. There's another one that I'm in more in production, and it's going to go on the air very shortly, and then we'll jump on yours. American Pickers. Right. Hits the air. Right. And I'm still sitting on the sidelines with a show I developed at the same time they done. Right. And I'm sitting there. Had you so done a I, pilot for them or just a no, sizzle? I had a bought. sizzle, and okay. I was ready to go. No, because I didn't, you know, I didn't even sell it to them. Right. She, she wanted it, and I had that loyalty. Wow. So I, okay. I'm tanked now. So I get on the phone, and I call Sharon Levy at, at Spike. I go, Sharon, I got a great show for you. I'm sending it over. Oh, my God. So I know where this is going. So I send it over to Sharon. So Sharon looks literally an hour later. So we'll, we'll take it. Little do I know that David McKillop at, uh, at History Channel has walked that tape across the hall to Rob Chernow at A&E. A&E. And Chernow sees that tape, and he goes, shit, I want this show. I'll right. take it. So he calls Phil Siegel, who's the president of my company at the time, and he says, Phil, you know, I really want to pick this. And Phil's like, you know, I'm sorry. I, he um, sold it to, uh, to uh, Spike. And Rob Sharonow is the biggest sweetheart on the planet, one of the loveliest guys here. And Rob said, one day I will run all the development of all the A&E networks, and you will never do another <laughs> show with me again. <laughs> but I checked with the legal guys, and they actually had an option, so they really had a, a right to the show. So, But I said to Phil, I said, look, a guy that passionate to say that, yeah. to get behind it, you know, to let him have the show. Now i got to go back to Sharon Levy. Sharon, who's equally a gangster. Yeah. Oh, my God. And yeah. she's going to cut my throat. Yeah. So I tell I mean, her. You put, you, put, you put Sharon Levy and Rob Sharon on a cage match. Oh. It's a toss-up. Exactly. So I'm sitting there going, oh, man. You know, and, and it was unintentional. But, again, I didn't have the, the legal right to do it. Right. You know, so I screwed up, really, by, to, in premature. But I was so pissed off that they'd sat on my show for a year. And then so, they did their own version. So then who? Spike eventually did their own version. Yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah. But Sharon, but I gave her. She said, well, what else you got? So I gave her coal. You did coal. Yeah, and I remember so, that because that yeah. was at the point where Spike was really starting to change yeah. brands. Yeah. But it didn't – unfortunately, it didn't work. I mean it right. really would have worked in a lot of networks, but they just weren't ready for that kind of docu-soap. Well, yeah, like, that's right. Like that, They were trying to become Discovery Nat Geo history overnight yeah. at Spike when Spike had been previously A Thousand Ways to Die and Deadliest Warrior. Yeah. So I, I did I did them a disservice because they really worked much better just with, with single standalone hours like A right. Thousand Ways to Die. 2012. You are now named CEO of Fremantle North America. So the mothership that bought your operation three years earlier now brings you in to run the entire studio. And you inherit 600 hours of network, cable, and syndicated storytelling that takes place every year under that shop. One of the biggest television companies in the world. How did your job and daily life change? Well, you know, this is a company that's doing American Idol at the time, X, X Factor, Factor, America's Got yeah. Talent, uh, Family Feud, Let's Make a Deal, Price is Right. You know, we've got all the, and, they own, uh, and I, we acquired some production companies. So it was weird because I took that job. But by the way, can, I got to segue back one other thing because yeah. this is one of my proudest moments ever for original productions. Back in 2009, at one time for a period of three weeks, we had a premiere episode of a new show. On a different network every night of the week. Come on. 
unheard of, and nobody's ever. I got the TV guy. You had a we flag? literally had a show on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in prime time. An original flagship episode. on different on seven different networks. Seven networks. No, was... on, on on five networks, but it was like different right. episodes. So we literally had two shows on Discovery. We had Discovery, Annie, History, Spike, True, uh, National Geographic. I remember the True show, the oil. Um... Yeah, we did black hole. Black Gold. Black Gold, yeah. That was a great show. Yeah. And I, was, by the way, you know, personal favorite of mine, just a fanboy out on you, I love The Colony. Thank you. I love The Colony, man. Boy, what, you, I, what, what you guys did with The Colony and what you attempted to do in, in an era where like everything was kind of cookie cutter at the time, and you took a leap, and you got them to do a second season, yeah. I, I, I loved it, man. I did, too. And I, it was one of the funnest experiences of my life because it was one of those things where I actually – I was the guy in the middle. My production guys and the people you know, that are yeah. <laughs> victims, are, are right. people that were kind of stuck out there living this life. And, you know, and they get into a rhythm, the two of them. And I was this crazy man that would come in literally at 2 in the morning. I'd be sitting in the control seat, and I'm watching this thing play. I'm like, fuck this. This is boring. And I'd go outside and throw a brick through the window. <laughs> right. He's like, what it was, are you doing? My it, producer goes, what are you doing? You're scared. I'm like, yeah. It was before Walking Dead. Oh, yeah. We were just – yeah. We were completely – and uh, Jeff Conroy, my, my, my president of, of the company at the time, and you know, uh, my producer now, my partner, he used to – he said, you know what? There were two different shows going on there because mm. we – it was kind of like the Stockholm syndrome. Right. We all were crazy too. We went out of our minds making that show as the producers. So right. there were two different shows going on. There was the, in front of the camera and behind right. the camera, and we were all crazy, right. though, which was great. And, and and the premise was kind of it, it was it was more of a Walking Dead version of what Utopia attempted to be yeah. a year ago, right? Yeah, exactly. Was it was people... basically what, it was a post-apocalyptic world. What would happen if you had very little water, very very little food? Very little, could you create a society with real and it was people? A real people. Yeah. And, but they all were skilled, and that right. was the thing that we did. We brought in MIT professors. We run guys that really knew what the hell they were doing yeah. so that they could actually use science and technology to their advantage. I mean, they, bid, they built freaking, you know, what, that gasinator, which is incredible. You know, out of wood, they created fuel, alcohol, methane. They created a gen- power to generate. Right. It was insane. And then we had po- solar panels that tracked the sun. I mean, the guys were insane what they did. I mean, it was great. It was, it was so good. Oh, yeah. You're, you're going to get flagged pretty soon, so I want to jump to How does it change? No, stuff. I still got I got 15 minutes. All but, right, so 2012, Fremantle. Yeah. You're you're this guy that's on top of the world doing whatever you want. It's your company, and you're in Burbank, and you can run your schedule as you please, and you're only worrying about your shows, your babies, right? They mm-hmm. have your fingerprints all over. Now you come in, and you inherit the U.S. operation, this major operation, shows that precede your time, producers that you haven't worked with before. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a scripted operation there, and you have these scripted executives that now report to you. How did your job change, and did you like it? Well, they didn't have a scripted division. I actually brought they didn't the have the scripted division. No, no, in I brought mail? them in. I brought I didn't Craig Zagelski in, and Craig and I. The first thing we got was American Gods, which is now on air and stars. It's funny. I feel a little bit like Kevin Riley because the stuff that I kind of put in motion back then it, it took years. No way. to to kind of come to fruition. But it's really great to see that and Buzzer. You know, Buzzer was an incredible thing. It, we had over. 20,000 hours of game shows going back to the 50s. And the only pe- we could, it was 30,000. The only people we could sell it to was Game Show Network. And right. they bought, f- I think, 1,500 hours a year. Right. That was it. So I said, you know, why don't we start our own channel? So we partnered with Fox. We just, now we just to deal with, uh, with DirecTV. We're literally in 60 million homes. And that thing is just starting to print cash and all, th- it's just old game shows. Right. You know? So we basically, so what I did, 
to be honest, I looked around and said, look, I can't do anything about American Idol. Right. I can't do anything about X Factor. America's Got Talent. Let's make it. I can't do anything. That's running itself. So where's the new business opportunity? I know Idol was going down, which was going to be a huge hit to the bottom line to this company. So I looked at it and said, okay, where can I start filling in the gaps that we haven't done? Scripted was the big swing. Right. So we got, you know, we started a scripted division and Segelsky, Craig Segelsky came in and did a fine job and got that Neil Gaiman book. And it was just, it's so exciting to see that they've already ordered the second season. Wow. You know, so that's a success, huge success. And then I looked at alternative businesses. I started acquiring. I bought Sally Ann, four ninety five. Right. We acquired um, her. Uh, we were looking at a number of acquisitions like that. And then we started Buzzer. So I, you know, look, in my ex-wife said to me at the time, my wife said, you know, why are you doing this? You've got, all, I mean, I got to be honest. I sold the company for basically, I, I made in excess of a hundred million dollars on that deal. Um, I, I had all the money in the world. I took care of all my executives. Everybody did really well. It was a, it was a, you know, good time for everybody. I didn't need a job, you know, and I remember saying to her, I said, yeah, but it look, it'll look great on the resume. <laughs> <laughs> and she's going, what do you, what do you need a resume for? What, what are you running for next? And I didn't even think about it. I was like, well, I don't know. But look, I always wanted to run. I mean, to me, getting on that big stage, you know, in Radio City or, you know, or he, over here, you know, doing Idol and watching that, it was, it's just, it's, God, it's, it's hypnotic. It's, yeah. it's so the power of that. And, you know, and I didn't, I played it down. I was not one of those big, powerful executives. I was, you know, the whole idea was to be humble and just, you know, just enjoy the ride, but think cleverly about new businesses. Right. You know, so you did, you did three years and then you take a sabbatical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You traveled all over. Where did you go? What did you do? You took oh, like a year off, right? Yeah, I basically I hiked the mountains of Myanmar. I I, I bicycled 500 miles across Cuba. Oh my gosh! Uh, I went to uh, I have a house in Mexico. I wandered the mountains of Mexico, the beaches of Mexico. I went to South America, uh, Hong Kong. Um, I'm still not done. I'm off, I'm off to I'm jumping on a plane on the in two weeks and I'm heading to uh, Tahiti and I'm sailing to Bora Bora. You know, I'm gonna scuba dive for a you're going to sail from Tahiti to Bora Bora, yeah. mm-hmm. and then you're going to do some scuba diving while yeah. you're there. Yeah, because I'm still kind of charging my batteries. So, you know, look, I, I, the key to it is I, I also, with that money, I, and I made a lot of really wise investments, knock yeah. wood, and way outside of the TV business. And I made almost as much money in those than I did in the TV business. What, what is this? Well, I didn't know this. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, everything from Kavita, which is a probiotic drink uh, that uh, I invested in when they were shipping 50 cases in Southern California. And basically, we sold it to Pepsi in November of last year for $240 million. Jesus Christ. I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then I bought, I own uh, two office buildings in Oakland, and I've got, uh, you know, Digiland, which is my new big venture. Yeah, tell me about this. So, you launched Bobcat, which is your production company, yeah, content right. company. Mm-hmm. But you also owned 45,000 square feet of warehouse in Burbank. And is that where the Monster Garage? Yeah, the old Monster Garage. I bought that building were? years ago for, to store all the Monster Garage cars. Right. And then over the years, I built it out. It's a big warehouse. Two, right. Actually, it's three big warehouses. Uh, and I built it out for offices. So I housed all of original productions there, which is great. It was flex space for me. If I had right. a new product, I didn't have to go. For, I never once had to rent an office. Right. You know what I mean? They're all mine. I own the buildings. Amazing. So in essence, it's like, so I just move it in and we expand, we contract. It didn't matter. But when they kind of moved on, OP, uh, I turned it into 
into now. It's kind of a WeWorks. It's a shared works environment. What's it called Great. again? It's called Digiland. And, and when, did it, ever, when, when did it open? Uh, opened about six, eight months ago. Okay. So I've got lofts. I've got production people or, and lofts. Uh, 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 Bert Van Munster just moved in. Huh. He's got a, a loft for his international group. I've got uh, two sound stages, and I just acquired another building next to, right next door for another 14,000 square feet. So I'm going to build two more sound stages, small insert stages there, and office space. And basically, it's just a really cool environment. Massive kitchen, you know, and so... And, and outside really, companies can just come there and use the space as their own office. They can, Yeah, they can rent it as individuals. They can rent an office. You can rent suites. You can rent the sound stages. You can rent... I've got a recording studio. Okay, so let's say I'm a startup company, and right. I only have, like... There's only, like, four of us. Yeah. I can... Each of us can get, you know, memberships and get a desk, get our little area to do our work. Yeah. If we have a shoot and we need your studio, we can rent it. Yeah. Uh, or if you have a recording studio, you can record What about post? Uh, I've got suites everywhere. I don't have the equipment. Right. But that's easy. I mean, you can just right. require now. You can rent equipment. equipment. But I, have, I have edit suites. I've probably got 30 edit suites. So how does that work? Like if it's my company and I sell a show, are we splitting the margin? Are we splitting that big cost? How do, you, how do you work that out with your... Your uh, members, we just, we, you know, they basically it's, it's a room rental. That's all it is. You know, you can put whatever you wow. want in there. So I'm not, no, I'm not getting anybody's pockets at all. I mean, it's just really, that's, that's it's awesome. renting. Tom, I don't think anything like that really exists, right? But the fun part for me is the fact that look, it gives me a chance. Also, I, you know, I love this business. Yeah. It gives me a chance to literally sit down with these people, and if they want advice, I'll give it to them. Yeah. You know, I mean, so I'm, I'm there. I'm there to mentor. I'm there to, you know, to basically help them shape. It's funny. I've had two guys come in that, that had looked at some of their tapes uh, last year and the year before. And I, and I said, you know, what if you did this and this and this? And one of them stopped me today and said, you know, Adam, he said, you know, I, uh, I just sold that series based on your notes. Oh, my gosh. You know, so it's kind of fun to do that. And I, and I love that. I love mentoring. How many current members are in Digiland right now? Uh, you know, it's probably about 120, and I've got another 30 that are moving in. And I, is the building next door, I'll be able to house another probably, you know, 40 or 50 people. Unbelievable. You know? So it's really fun. But, you know, I, look, all I'm saying is that, you know, I, I had a model years ago. And I've stuck with it my entire life. There were two of them. One was, if what you're doing doesn't make your heart pump Kool-Aid or your dick hard, it's not worth doing. Right? I mean, that you know, that's true. And and my network motto that I taught my guys from day one is, as far as network goes, we will always be your solution. We'll never be your problem. Mm. So those are words to live by for me. And I've stuck with them my entire life, and they seem to have worked pretty well. Last question. Is there any one project that still eludes you that you've tried and tried and tried over the years? Like your great white, right? Yes, I have it. It's my opus. And thank God for the History Channel. I think finally it's taken me seven years. But um, I've always wanted to do what I did in Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Truckers with the American Farmer. And so um, basically they um, – they basically greenlit we're in development now in casting so i'm going to do basically five farms or six farms around the country and track them through the entire growing season but it's big yeah cgi graphics it's time lapse on plants oh wow big epic score we're talking to farm aid and we're talking to willie and these guys and and john to give us the score for the series plus we want to live air the the farm aid concert wow uh, and their networks a little bit of planet earth to it too kind of yeah Yeah, so that's awesome yeah but what people don't realize is and this is what sold it they didn't realize that over half of the industrial accidents in america every year is on the american farm Hmm. It is one of the most dangerous places. It's deadlier than a ship, hmm. you know. I mean, from anything from machinery to to, to um, 
stroke, heart attacks, literally the, the stuff that happens to farmers. I mean, the stress on these guys are amazing. They're under attack through an entire season. You know, get the money for planting, basically plant. Now, can you can you get money to? Do you have water? Do you have the water rights to do it? Oh, you got too much. Well, what happens when when the floods come? Or is it the drought? What comes next? Oh, how about pestilence? Okay, right. that's great. And then right down to the very end. Well, what happens when all of a sudden, because of the American government, we can't get farm workers to come in and pick our crop? Right. How do we bring our harvest? There? So in essence, that farm to fork idea. So it's the concept is family farm and fork. Yeah, that's it. Family farm to fork. So you, it's something I've been dying to do. Seven for years you've been trying years. to get that off. Yep. And history is going to make it happen. Yep. I just love the Discovery History Channel war. I just I just love the beef between those two and and the heat. Look, they, the the A&E guys are really nurturing and they're really really good. And yeah. you know they've been big fans of ours. And this is kind of a you know and thank God for Nancy and it's kind of a uh, you know a, a little bit of a give back. Say so, yeah you know. Trust, we trust you. And I, I see this film. This Will series. that be the first series for Bobcat? No, there's uh, two or three other that are kind of floating. We already did okay. one. We did the uh, Comic-Con thing with... Um, for sci-fi? Yeah, uh, we did a, No, a Comic-Con, actually for the Comic-Con channel. Oh, actually Comic-Con. Yeah, Mark they have their Hamill own the top, thing. right? Yeah, yeah, we did OTT with you Mark You did that Hamill. with Mark Hamill? Yeah. yeah. I took that out with Mark Hamill. Actually, not the exact thing Mark wanted to do. I, I was trying to get Mark to do something else. I took him out to all the cable networks, couldn't sell it. Two and a half years ago, it was before the new movie came out. It was before the new Star Wars came out. And I told all the networks, I'm like, guys, he's about to be in the highest grossing film of all time. He's going to be in the new Star Wars. Just put it into development. Give Mark Hamill a development deal. We'll talk him into something else. But he really, really, Mark really, 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 really wanted to do this show that was about collectors, yeah. right? Yeah. And I tried taking out, and no cable networks could see well, they the did, light. They didn't, but that's why Comic Con bought it. And, I, it and at that time, fanboys, yeah, you know? and at that time, Comic Con, I don't think, had their over the top thing yet. This no. was like two and a half, three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, you, you realize that those people all were probably eight years old when Star Wars went on, you know, went into the theaters. I mean, I'm swear to God, I'm walking but around old here today. They're to read box office numbers, aren't they? But I'm walking around today, and I looked at uh, there were two executives I saw from Animal Planet, and I'm, I swear to God, they were 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh man, you know, I'm, I might be getting too old for this business, but you know. It, I'll keep trugging along I as long as somebody a, gives me a commission. I think you have a lot of mileage ahead of you. I appreciate you coming on the show. <laughs> sure. Thanks, man. All right. Pleasure.